cutting line issue this was in the Reformation, where the Roman Catholic understanding of the righteousness which justifies us is that it's infused. So uh, a little dose of righteousness gets injected as though righteousness is stuff, right? It gets injected into you, and then as you cooperate with that righteousness, you grow in actual obedience, and it's your actual obedience, it's your actual cooperation which will end up justifying you. Um, and I, I've fumbled over the formula, but in Roman Catholicism, faith plus works equals salvation. In Protestant thinking, salvation equals, or faith equals salvation plus works. Okay, see the difference? In Roman Catholic theology, faith plus works equals salvation. In Protestant theology, faith equals salvation plus works. Okay, so your faith will not uh, stay idle. Okay, um, and it's imputed, which means it's not your cooperation with grace that saves you. It's the righteousness of Jesus being credited to your account. That's imputation. Moving it from the column of Jesus into the column of Frank Dirksen. So Frank Dirksen actually owns 100% of Jesus Christ's righteousness. And I'm just picking on Frank. He's a pretty righteous guy. So I, I hope that's okay. Okay? So it's, it's a transfer. That God transfers your sin onto Christ and then Christ's righteousness onto you. That's imputation. That's different than infusion. Which is where you have to cooperate to get justified. Okay, so this is a very important uh, issue, historically speaking and practically speaking. So far, so good on what we discussed last week. Was there leftover questions on that? Are we good to carry on? Okay, so Tim's asking, would there be other groups of Christians that would have a similar understanding to Rome on that, that were saved by infused righteousness rather than imputed righteousness? On paper, not really. Uh, well, no, to be fair, on paper, none. Rome is by herself on that. In actual fact let's say about a hundred years into the Reformation, when Arminian theology came along, um, and Arminian theology is that which says faith is something you do, right? So they believe we're justified by faith, but the faith is something you have to get, okay? You have to do it. You have to choose. So you get faith by a decision of your will. So they're saying that's a lot of grace, it's like 99.9% .9 you're saved by grace. But the decisive 0.1% is up to you. So, so the earlier reformer said that's just a step, a small step, but a real step back to Rome. Because now the decisive step in your salvation is still something you did. If Monergism versus synergism. Is there one working in your salvation or is there two working in your salvation? And so... The church got together um, in a city in the Netherlands. So Anglicans came from England and Presbyterians from Scotland and Lutherans from uh, 
and reformed from continental Europe, and they got together and they hammered out something called the Canons of Dort. Has anyone ever heard of the Canons of Dort? Okay. Um, and so the Canons of Dort, if you're Dutch, you've for sure heard of it, and if I'm not mistaken, Sean said he was converted to Reformed theology by the Canons of Dort. So, um, so there's some familiar. But basically, it, it worked this out. It, it dealt with the Arminian challenge within the Protestant world. And they didn't call it heretical, but they did say, this is just, we're heading back to Rome. So for that reason, we're out. Okay? Um, so it, it, it specifically rejected Arminian theology for that reason, because it still leaves salvation in man's hands, even if it's a small part. But the important part is uh, that last 1% or 0.1% is something you did. So the reason you're actually saved is an action on your part rather than a gift from God. And that's what they were uh, attempting to reject. But no evangelical Arminian, in their minds, they're not saying that's something we contribute to their salvation. They would say, and I think they mean it, yes, it's all by grace. But there, I, I think there's an inconsistency there. But on paper, they would not affirm infused righteousness. Okay, anything else on that? And if we're talking, in, in terms of understanding uh, our Roman Catholic friends um, well, this emphasis on infused righteousness and cooperation actually makes total sense in light of uh, the elements in the Mass being real elements, right? Because you're actually feeding literally on the body and blood of Christ because you need Him to help you every week, right? And the... And the, the um, the seven sacraments, right? So doing penance and praying through the rosary. That's something God put in your hand to help you. Um, and even this idea of purgatory, uh, where saints have to have their last sins purged before they're fit for heaven. It actually all fits. It makes sense. It's coherent in itself. We would say it's not uh, properly biblical, but it does make sense, right? So saints have to go to purgatory because they didn't cooperate fully. So those last sins have to get purged, hence the name purgatory. They have to get burned off. The dross has to get burned off. Once it's burned off in your pure gold, uh, then you are fit for heaven. So this is, it sends us in very different directions. Um, I'm good to leave it there, unless there's further, oh, Marina. How do you mean? If you're a Roman Catholic, you can't say that? Or As a Christian, you can say you have decided to follow Jesus because you have. No, you have responded to something. We, what we would say is, why did you choose? No, no. You cooperated after your justification. You, co you contributed and cooperated absolutely nothing in your justification. Nothing at all. The fact that God... Okay, the analogy I always use, because it is a salvation metaphor, I believe is the resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus cooperated exactly nothing to being born again. Like nothing, nothing. He didn't cooperate. He didn't choose. He was dead. Dead. And Christ raised him up. 
after he's raised up, now he cooperates. Okay? But it's a response to the fact that God just did this. He just regenerated and justified you. Now that that's happened, it's true. You are choosing daily to follow Jesus. But that's because he first did something in you without your help and without your permission. He just did it. Okay? So this isn't... Uh, the analogy is sometimes given of salvation like a life preserver flown, you know, thrown off the boat uh, to all these drowning people uh, and you're saved if you grab the life preserver. What the Bible says is there's nobody flailing in the water. There's a bunch of corpses down at the bottom of the sea. Okay? There's a bunch of dead people who don't care that they're dead and they're, they don't care about the life preservers. If a Savior goes down and performs CPR on them and brings them to life, they will grab onto the life preserver. But that initial act of justification, that initial act of being born again, is zero human cooperation whatsoever. It's just grace. Howard. That's right. He really did. Because it was really Lazarus that, yes. Yep. That's right. Yeah, and so I have no problem, so I've sometimes talked about cage-sage Calvinists when they first come to Calvinism, and it's intellectually satisfying, and all of a sudden the Bible starts to make sense, and if you're a man between age 18 and 50, you get really obnoxious about it, um, because it took you 10 years of study to get there, and now everyone else has to understand this perfectly in the next eight-minute conversation. Um, and so that phrase, the cage stage, will just, I forget who coined it, but basically lock these young guys up in a cage in the church basement for a year so they can settle down and learn, like Ron shared this morning, to speak lovingly and patiently. And, and can we extend as much grace to others as our theology demands? There's a, there's a, a disjunction there of saying it's all grace, it's all grace, it's all grace, and I'm going to be the most obnoxious person you know until you are as gracious as I am. Okay? So we need to learn how to be sage and be gracious about this. And so I have no problem with what Howard said. After Lazarus is raised to life, he can really say, I was raised to life. I don't have any problem singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. I can sing that with a clear conscience because I have decided to follow Jesus. But that's because Jesus decided to raise me to life. First, and I cooperated absolutely nothing to that. Nothing. I was just dead. And he said, okay, it's time for you to come to life. So it's still all of grace. But we don't have to get so hypersensitive about this that we can't talk as though humans are actually humans. We really are. If you were... Nope. Right, yeah. So what we're seeing is the after effects of God putting that grace on us, or imputing it to us. More discussion on this. 
Have I adequately warned everyone about the cage stage? I was thankfully in my high 20s, so it wasn't super bad, I don't think. But I'm sure I'd be embarrassed of myself if I could go back and watch the game film. Okay? And now as an older guy, I see it in young guys. Okay, don't be cagey. Okay? Be as gracious as this theology demands, which is really gracious. Yeah, and in many conversations I've had with people where there's disagreement about, you name it, you name the issue, not even Calvinism, but other doctrines or other practices. If you just do this, they're just going to go over there and that bridge is gone. And they're not listening. Okay? Uh, Chesterton defines a fanatic as someone who won't change his mind and refuses to change the subject. That's a great way to just empty out your church for no good reason and just send people packing. Be patient, okay? And if this is the subject of every conversation and it always has to go to your pet doctrine or your pet issue, it's not going to work, okay? If it comes up, discuss it. Discuss it graciously. Be in the Bible. But, but to just hammer on your pet doctrine, and it's often Calvinism for people that find it. And... And I get it. When I found answers to some of these things that no one in my life had answered, and you're in like 27, and finally there's coherent answers, it feels incredibly frustrating. Was everybody lying to me? Like, was I just lied to my whole life? Did they not care? Like, was this so unimportant that they didn't read a book? It's incredibly frustrating. And if you're a, an ambitious young guy, there's lots of anger and lots of frustration and lots of impatience that comes with I get that. But part of putting the flesh to death is to say, uh, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to relax about this. I'm going to be gracious about it. Let's keep moving here. After footnote two here. He does this for Christ's sake alone and not for anything produced in them or by them. Who wants to read 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31? Who wants to take that? Jeremy, who wants to take Romans 5, 17 through 19? Howard. Okay, go ahead, 1 Corinthians. Okay, very good. So why are you in Christ Jesus? Because of him. Jesus did this. Okay, Jesus placed you there. And then it says, Jesus Christ, the person, the man, became wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. 
So all the wisdom that you have is Christ. Your righteousness is Christ. Your sanctification is Christ. Your redemption is Christ. So how much boasting is left for Mike Bowman to do? If anyone in this room is going to boast about their righteousness or their salvation, let them boast how? In the Lord. Right? In the Lord. Christ did this for me. Okay? If you receive a gift, you can't brag about it. Someone did this for you. Someone gave this to you. Okay? It's not earned. It's a gift. So there's, boasting is entirely out of place. And if we leave even that last 1%, to go back to Tim's point here, if we leave even that last 0.1% in the hands of man, then the reason that you're saved and your neighbor is not is something in you. Which must mean you are a little bit smarter. You are a little bit more pious. You are a little bit softer in the heart. Okay? There is a little bit something to boast. But Martin Luther always said, a, a little something is something. Okay? If Jesus says that we contribute nothing, nothing is not a little something. It's nothing. It's all of Christ, top to bottom. Keith. Okay, so Keith, if I'm paraphrasing correctly, and maybe some of you have heard this too, is that, well, you're just a Christian because of when and where you were born, right? And this guy's just a Hindu because of when and where he was born, okay? And usually that objection, if I'm understanding you correctly, just means we can't know the truth. You just are what your surroundings are, right? That's the underlying assumption is just this impersonal cause and effect universe and people just are what their surroundings are and it, it all means nothing anyway. Okay. First of all, I think, especially for young people who are going to hear that objection, it's important to dismantle that first objection. Okay. If, and this is the stuff of Marxist thinking, and this is also the stuff of Freudian psychology, which just says you just are what your environment is, you're helpless, okay? So young people, if you get that, when you get that, at school or at university, just think about this. How did that person arrive at their assumptions? They're also just the product of their environment, so they can't actually say that. They're, they're cutting off the branch that they're sitting on. So their, their own comment essentially just devolves into nothing. It's thin air. None of us can know anything anyway. We have no access to the truth. So your comment actually means nothing. But you're wanting to say that positively, uh, humanly speaking, am I a Christian because I was born in a Christian family? Yes. Yeah. And there would be nothing gained by me saying no. no that's true. Okay? But that itself is part of the gift 
that God used to get me into the kingdom. So I would say, just say, yes, sure, you know, God uses means, um, but it's not like this is 100% either. Does every kid who's born in a Christian family become a Christian? No. Are there converts from the outside? Yes, there are. But the normal pattern is that Christians are produced in Christian homes. That's the normal pattern. And that's actually why it's important for Christians to have kids and to teach their kids. Um, but the truth is the truth regardless of where you are or what time you're living in. It's, it's objective. And so even for their statement to mean anything at all, that must mean there's objective, transcendental truth for us to make a value judgment on it. So I, I don't know, but I, no, I'd say just own it. Well, you're just a Christian because you grew up in a Christian family. Yep. Yep. And, and this is an incredible mercy from God. Thank you, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I'd say positive and negative both. So give a positive answer, but then also dismantle the foundation of their argument. Their argument is just sinking sand. Yeah, that's, that's the stuff God used to get you there. Yeah. Howard, do you want to go ahead and read uh, Romans 5? 17 to 19, yep. Okay, so this is a classic text on imputation. One man's sin, okay, and everyone in this room and in the world was in Adam's loins when he sinned. So when your first father sinned, so did you. That's how covenant theology works. You were in his loins. When our first parents reached their hands out for the fruit, your hand was right there with them. You took the fruit covenantally through your father Adam. You sinned in that trespass. Therefore, we are born, as Ephesians says, children of wrath. That cuts so against the independent, autonomous thinking in our culture, but that's how it works. You sinned because your father reached for that fruit. And everything in his loins became corrupted. And we are all downstream from those loins. That's how imputation works. And every North American says, that's not fair. Couple things. Who chose Adam as the representative for the human race? Who? God. Did God choose accurately or inaccurately? Was God's choice of a representative an accurate choice? I think he picked a good candidate to represent us, okay? So, objection one is answered, would you have done better? You would not have done better. You would have made the same call. How do you know? Well, because God chose that representative and he represented you well. 
Objection one. Objection two to that's not fair. Is the second part of this transaction fair? That Christ's righteousness is transferred to you by a gift of grace. Is that fair? No, it is not. That is not fair. Okay? So if you're going to say we can't be counted uh, unrighteous, we can't be counted evil because of your first father's sins, that also means it's impossible for you to be counted righteous because the righteousness of another man. You cut your legs off to the gospel if we're going to go that route, that there can't be representation. And you're saying God chose a representative for the human race poorly. Someone in this room could have done a better job than Adam did. God wasn't wise in his choice of sending out a representative, and that's clearly impossible. Keith. Yeah, and that's an interesting point, because now we have petty sins that none of us were, therefore, in any sense, even covenantally, um, that they want to tag on people, right? So I'm literally evil, because look at my skin. It's literally pale. I'm literally Hitler, right? Um, And I'm a man, and I'm in my 40s, and I'm a Christian, in the oppression Olympics, I score very, very low. Okay? I, I'm, part, I'm an oppressor. I'm part of the problem. I'm an evil one. They do that with petty sins, right? Um, but they say this, this is impossible. And it's so backwards. Yep. So we have a robust covenantalism. Um, they just have guilt by association, which is two different things. Okay? And all this talk of reparations and all this, you know, I think, is it in California where they're cutting checks to black people? So here's a thought experiment. If your ancestors moved from Norway to California in 1970, are you part of the slavery problem? In their thinking, yes. Do you have any guilt on your hands whatsoever for slavery? None. Now let's do it the other way. Now you're black and your grandparents moved from Jamaica in 1987. Do you get a check because of your skin color? By this way of thinking, yes. Because you're oppressed because of your skin color. In actual history, was anyone in your family there? No. Okay. We do guilt by association because people have similar traits like white skin or black skin or maleness or femaleness or whatever. This, this is something different. This is robust covenantalism saying so-and-so was in Adam's loins and God chose Adam as the federal head and then he chose Christ as the federal head. So there's these two columns of humanity and everyone is in one family or the other. But that's different than this guilt by association for petty sins. Um, and that's where the, that Marxist and Freudian Marxist theology and Freudian psychology really sends you down <laughs> it just gets you deeper into yourself and treats humans like impersonal cause and effect machines Well, sure, yeah, critical race theory or Freudian psychology are parasites on Genesis 1. They are. 
It's the wish.com version of covenant theology, okay? It's a cheap knockoff. It's Walmart covenant theology. And they're saying, because you're white, you are evil. You owe a check to all these people who have darker skin than you. That, that's a good question, because these things haven't been taught. Because we've bought the lie that everyone's an isolated individual. Uh, we're all these helpless you know, victims of our past and, and so forth. Um, and the church has not had a good answer to any of that. We've largely bought into it and then tried to Christianize it with a few Bible verses. And that's impossible. There's, there's some ideas where we just have to say absolutely no. We, we cannot go along with a Marxist view of the world. We cannot go along with the Freudian view of the human nature. We, we just can't. So let's quit trying to Christianize these things. Let's just say the Word of God understands how the human mind operates better than our secular commentators do. They may have insights from time to time, but that's also a gift from God. But this is the standard by which we know. More on that. I want to keep going too, but I don't want to cut conversation off. Then let's keep going. Okay? <clears throat> he does not impute faith itself, the act of believing, or any other gospel obedience to them as their righteousness. Instead, he imputes Christ's act of obedience to the whole law and passive obedience in his death as their whole and only righteousness by faith. And that is a mouthful. What that is saying, and we discussed this last week, so maybe we don't have to discuss it as much today, is if you read, I think it's in Genesis, I won't say the chapter, maybe Genesis 4, wherever it says um, that Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay. Oh, very good. Okay, Genesis 15, verse 6. Ver okay, Vern's fact-checking on the spot. Perfect. Okay, so Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And Romans picks up on that theme and says it works the same way for us. We believe God and it's counted as righteousness. So then the discussion is, okay, is the faith itself an act of righteousness that I perform? I put my loony in the drink machine and I press the salvation button and out comes 355 fluid milliliters of righteousness. Okay. Is that how it works? And we, of course, would say no. Faith is not a righteous act I perform. Faith is an open hand that receives. Right? And I think last week I gave the example of a plug on your fridge. The male end on that plug produces no energy whatsoever. It receives energy when it's plugged in. Faith is an empty hand. Faith is the male plug that goes into the wall and receives. Okay? So, uh, Abram believed in God and it's counted to him as righteousness. Okay? The belief is not a righteous act that he performed. It's part of the gift. And because he receives it by faith, that the whole package is counted to him uh, as righteousness. So faith is something that receives. It's not something that you perform and then you get a gift in exchange. Do you see the difference? Faith receives. Faith does not perform. Okay? Okay? So grace isn't, I paid $1 for a $100 prize. That's gracious. Okay? We're saying 
you perform nothing. Another analogy I like to give is the little kid who wants to get mom something for her birthday. So mom gives her 20 bucks, drives her to the store so she can get something for mom, and then, <laughs> and then mom gets a gift. That's your faith. Okay? Christ works it in you, and then that, that willingness to receive receives all the righteousness. It receives sanctification. It receives redemption. It receives all these gifts from God by faith. And the faith itself is part of the gift. And so that's what it means here when it says, he does not impute faith itself or the act of believing or any other gospel obedience to them as their righteousness. So your faith is not your righteousness. Your faith receives the righteousness. Okay? So this is ruling out that we would be saved by our cooperation. You're saved by grace. It says, instead, he imputes Christ's active obedience to the whole law and passive obedience in his death as their whole and only righteousness by faith. Who's ever heard of this distinction between active and passive obedience of Christ? Has anyone heard that distinction? Okay. Um, Christ's active obedience is Christ actively going out and doing righteous things. So when Christ follows God's law perfectly, that's active obedience. And his passive obedience is him not retaliating with force at his crucifixion. He is passively obedient. He is accepting the will of God in that action. So it's both active, he performs the law of Moses perfectly, and it's passive, uh, he utters not a word as he's being led to the slaughter. Okay? Active and passive, and all of it, the whole package, is counted to you when you receive it by faith. And we'll look at those verses, and then we'll bring it in for a landing here. So, uh, for number four, who wants to take Philippians 3, verse 8 and 9? Tim, and then who wants to take Ephesians 2, 8 through 10? Jolene. Okay. Go ahead, Tim. Amen. Okay, so there it is. Comes through faith. Paul is found in him, and his righteousness does not originate in him, it originates in Christ, and it's counted to Paul. And it works the same for us, and it worked the same for Abram. So this is a unified plan of redemption by grace. Uh, Jolene, go ahead in Ephesians. Amen. Okay, so there again, you see it, Julian, don't you? The whole package. And last week, I'm not a language guy, but I have looked at the Greek language on this one here. And I brought it up last week. But when it says um, in verse 8, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. The gender in that language is neutral. The word faith Pistis in Greek is a feminine word, and the word salvation is a masculine word. So some people will say, it is the gift of God. Well, yeah, the salvation is the gift. 
They'll say salvation's the gift, but the faith is the part you contribute. You put your loony in, and then salvation is the gift. But the faith is something you did. But the fact that the gift part is neutral means it encompasses the whole thing. The faith and the salvation are both in view when it says this is the gift of God. This is the faith and the salvation in response to that faith. The whole package, the whole thing is gift. It's all grace. It's all gift. It's all kindness from God. And we'll stop there. Any last discussion on this? We'll do footnote five next week. How does Rome square verse nine? Not as well. They're saying that that first dose of righteousness that got infused into you is a gift. Your parents brought you to baptism so that your original sin could be erased. Um, God is feeding you through Mother Kirk, through the sacraments, through penance, um, through these different things. So you chose not to go the ordination route. You chose to go the marriage route. God gave you that. Um, so they would say it's all based on grace. And frankly, we are um, lying if we say that Roman Catholics don't believe in grace. They just believe in grace plus. But they do emphasize grace. And they'd say, yeah, it's all a, it's all a gift. You just have to do your part now. You have to cooperate. So the gift, that Rome would say grace is necessary, but it's not sufficient. You need that grace to get you started, but then once you got that first push on your trike, now you've got to pedal. And, and we say Christ is pedaling for you. Are Roman Catholics saved? Maybe. <laughs> I'd say... Yes, I, I do believe there are saved Roman Catholics. I always struggle with this because their gospel would cut anyone off from salvation. If you consistently believe the Roman Catholic gospel, there is no salvation in that gospel. That much I will say. It's a false gospel because it's a works gospel. However, <laughs> however, <laughs> Howard says something important. Good thing most of us are not consistent with our theology. Okay? We are saved by faith. We are not saved by understanding the doctrine of justification by faith. Okay? This is good news for Arminians, and it's good news for Roman Catholics. You're not saved by understanding how you got saved. You're saved by actually possessing saving faith. So is it possible that someone who's grown up in the Roman Catholic Church Let's make it real easy. Someone in Brazil who's had no exposure to anything else other than Rome and all the superstitious stuff. But you have this 85-year-old widow woman who's actually trusting Jesus. And it's real faith. But she's never been taught better. She's never learned better. Can she be saved? If the faith comes from Christ, it is real, but that doesn't mean we understand it correctly. So I'd even say, let's say, let's make this simple, let's move it into the evangelical world. Arminians understand how they got saved completely erroneously, in my mind. 
right? They'll look at their experience and they say, well, no, my, my will came alive. I must have chosen to have faith. They might actually possess faith, but they're looking to their experience to see how it got there. But if they actually possess it, whether they understand how it got there or not, correctly is different that Christ actually gave it to them. So Christ can actually give you a gift that you don't understand properly. So I would leave it open that yes, Roman Catholics may actually be saved. Christ may have put the gift of faith in them. And if they're going to spend a long time in the Word, their thinking should be changed. It should be transformed. But I would hold out hope that these people may actually possess faith. I would say, and this, this is where I like to do thought experiments to get people to think differently. If you have a poorly taught saint that actually has saving faith in the Roman Catholic Church, I would say that that is more and more likely as you move down the hierarchy. As you move up and these people are very self-consciously rejecting the gospel, I'd say there is much, much, much less hope for a bishop or a cardinal or the pope. Or where I always like to jar people, Mother Teresa. Okay? She was pretty intentional about rejecting the gospel. And even the conservative popes, the ones I like, Pope Benedict, who was very conservative, said if the Bible is the word of God, the way the Protestants say it is, it's the final authority, then their view of the gospel is correct. He just said that. If the Bible, if it's sola scriptura, the Protestants are right. Good thing for him, it's also plus tradition, plus the Pope, plus... I think the likelihood of salvation existing there is much, much less than it is among the laity who may just be poorly taught, but actually are trusting Jesus. But I want to be careful with that because does that mean the Roman, it doesn't matter? No, it absolutely matters. And it is life and death. And we have to teach the pure biblical gospel. But we also have to leave room that people may not understand the gospel that God has put in their heart, I think. Because then otherwise we'd have to say Arminians can't be saved either. And I would be very unhappy to say that. Right? Yep. Yep. Uh, and I'd agree with that. But their gospel cuts them off from salvation if they're going to consistently believe it. Yep. There was a couple hands here. Howard and then Lisa. The, the thief on the cross did not know about sola fide. It's the possession of faith that matters, not understanding how it got there. And we reject Rome's doctrines because they do send people away from the gospel rather than into it. But yes, Lisa. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so again, for those of us who love doctrine, we're saved by faith not by understanding how faith works, okay? So yes, we can be gracious to other uh, Christians who may have a weak or a poor or uh, even wrong understanding of grace. But, but we're going to insist on this because this is the pure gospel. Alfred. That's what?
Can they be a Christian? Well, can they be saved in that environment? Yes. As they grow, okay, so if you're converted at a gay bar and you die in a car accident on your way home, are you saved? Yep. If you're truly saved, are you going to stay in that state for long? And you won't. You won't. The, the thief on the cross example, I think it's Samuel Rutherford who said it, thief on the cross example in scripture is wonderful because it happens exactly once. So that example holds out faith that this can happen, but it only happens once because we know that's clearly outside the bounds of normal. Okay? So it happens once that we have hope, but it happens only once so that we don't presume. So can someone who's truly converted, now we're talking actual faith, can they stay in an actively sinful lifestyle? And the answer to that is no. The Holy Spirit will convict them of that, and they will have to leave their sin behind. They will have to. Um, And I would say, if it's a truly regenerate person, as they're reading the scriptures, they'll have to leave their Romish doctrines behind too. They'll have to. Because you cannot square Roman Catholic theology with the Bible. It, It cannot be done. I would just want to hold out thief on the cross type hope. Can someone be saved in that environment? Yes. But part of the Spirit's work is to sanctify you and not leave you in your sin. So as you grow in grace, you're going to say, I have to leave Rome. I have to find an evangelical church somewhere. Um, Or I I cannot live in a common law lifestyle. I cannot live in a homosexual lifestyle. Because... The grace of God doesn't just leave us, right? He doesn't just zap you with salvation and then say, now live however you want. It actually says that's impossible. If the Spirit's forming up in you, you, you have to put sin to death. So that's, that's how I'd want to, how I think I'd want to handle it. There's one thief on the cross event and only one. Okay? Do with that as, as you wish. But we've got people coming in here, so why don't we close in prayer? And we can pick this up again next week. Father God, thank you for your word. I want to thank you that it challenges our traditions, it challenges our assumptions. Uh, Lord, and I pray that at the same time in a group like this, where we come from different backgrounds, different personalities, we're at different places in our salvation, um, I pray that we would have the spine and the courage and the fortitude to go unashamedly, wherever your word would have us go. And at the same time, also to be gracious and patient with those whose understanding is new or weak or poorly taught. Lord, I pray that we would not be obnoxious um, with them, but that we would be patient and slowly and patiently and graciously uh, use conversations redemptively to point them to the glorious truths of your word. Lord, and that they would not just possess faith, but that they would also come to a correct understanding of how that faith is created in the human heart. Uh, And as far as the conversation this morning, Lord, I pray that whatever uh, brings you glory, that you would press into our hearts, uh, and that which has been confusing or unhelpful, that you would erase that from our memory and drive the nail of your truth deep into our hearts. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your patience with us. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus and ask your blessing on this morning. And amen.